When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Happy Halloween. Welcome to Time to Talk. My name is Alex Holmes and I'm the host of this show. Um, I'm currently in Jamaica um, as it stands. And as I said, the next few episodes are just going to be conversations um, that I just wanted to put out while I never really got a chance to do any um, solo episodes. I just thought there were some private, no, there are some conversations that I do want to share, uh, not private ones, but these are conversations I want to share and I want to put them out. Um, and this week I'm speaking to a man called Gregory David Roberts. Now, Gregory David Roberts is an Australian author and he's best known for his novel Shantaram. Um, he is a former heroin addict and convicted bank robber and he escaped Pentridge prison in 1980 in Australia and fled to India where he lived for 10 years and he was on the run um, for a while before he got caught again and brought back to Australia and I think it's um, it's a magnificent story and it all ends up full circle because he is currently in Jamaica so we have a chat about that um, a chat about his story and Shantaram is now a TV series on Apple Plus TV and there's just a lot that Gregory has to share um, there's a lot that he's been through um, he is 70 he has a wisdom that is unmatched in some areas and I really enjoyed speaking to him um, and yeah, so we talk about all things. We talk about the spiritual path, his latest book. We talk about Shantaram. We talk about just gaining wisdom from experience. And yeah, and at the end, he shares the books that he wants to recommend for you guys to listen, to read, and to, to connect with. So well, let me get back to my holiday. But here is... Gregory David Roberts, who I call GDR. Gregory David Roberts on Time to Talk. Enjoy. Welcome, GDR, to Time to Talk. Pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? Very, very well, thank you. Really very happy, very um, creative, uh, very wor uh, working very hard, very inspired and um, uplifted by many of the people around me. So I would say uh, altogether, 100%, man, 100%. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. I think that it's amazing that you are just in Jamaica right now. And I think you're the second person on this podcast. Who, no, yeah, you're the second person on this podcast who's just been in the Caribbean. And um, when I'm speaking to them, and I'm in, and I'm 
in a typically cold or wet weather situation over here in the UK. I think I spoke to Michael Holding and he was in the Cayman Islands and he was walk- he was happy and warm in his shorts and I was sitting here watching the rainfall, which is still beautiful. Um, but now we are bang in winter and you are in Jamaica and, um, and I'm loving all of that where you're at right now. How is it over there? It's beautiful. And thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's beautiful, uh, beautiful Jamaica. Um, everything that you see is still everywhere around you. You can find within a, a walk, you can find green, you can find trees, uh, you can find beautiful hills and mountains still covered in masses of trees as far as the eye can see. You can travel to the coastline and see some of the most beautiful beaches. And But apart from that, you just... The scenery here, of course, it's gorgeous, but it's the people, Jamaican people. It's it's such a fantastic diaspora. Um, it's so welcoming, so embracing. Um, looking from the outside, having traveled a lot around the world, I can, you know, concede to my many Jamaican friends that there are a lot of problems in Jamaica, and of course I see that. But um, what Jamaica has to offer is something that's diminishing all over the world, and that's people, perfect strangers, who as they pass you in the street will say respect, who will say blessings, who will yeah. say heart of love as they go past. They have no idea who you are. You have no idea who they are. You may never see them again, but you got a blessing from that stranger. This is diminishing. We all used to do this once, offer each other these encouraging blessings. So that's still a vital tradition in Jamaica. People are beautiful, strong, proud. Um, what's not to like about this wonderful country? Your story is something that it just made me feel like it did make me feel hopeful but it also made me think like life can go in so many directions in so many ways and you know the fact that we're sitting here and having this conversation now and you know I'm willing to be able to speak about your story just makes me think about you know when you're going through something straight at the and at a very at a point and it's usually a, a, a strong point of disconnection or you know you feel like it's the end of the world or you feel like nothing can get worse than this or all of that stuff and then you can sit back and you can at this present time and you look back on that moment and you just think wow what a time that was I think that's the kind of feeling I was getting from reading your story um, and, and looking around at where where you came from um, in the end. But we're going to get into um, some of those things. And of course, we're going to have a chat about your new book as well. But um, I wanted just to start because for the purposes of people that probably don't know who you are, um, where you come from um, and your story, I just wanted to just ask you to tell me about your beginnings. What was it like for you? I grew up as a working-class kid in a very hard-working household with mother and father who both worked full-time. They um, led a very modest life because they invested a lot of money in the education of their two sons, my brother and myself. They helped us to achieve and encouraged us to. And we grew up at first in a very tight-knit working-class community where Every door was left open in summer. No one had air conditioning. Nobody, many didn't even have fans. So you left the front door open with a fly screen on there, fly screen door, and the back door open, and the wind would pass through your house every evening and keep cool the house down. The houses were, in fact, built for that. They were built for the passage of airways through. 
And as kids in summer growing up, we would run from house to house in the evening. We were all out on the street. There was no one particularly watching us. And after a day's play down by the river, there was no one watching us. And then we would run in and out of each other's houses to visit each other, to pick up a treat from this one or that one, to pick up a toy from somebody else's place, to run around and do things in and out of everybody's house all evening and all night. And when people went to sleep, they left the doors like that. Nobody locked the door. Nothing happened. Um, of course, there were incidents. Domestic abuse was something that um, occurred. In that tight-knit community, everyone stepped in. When they heard a woman screaming or shouting in pain, everybody would get up, lights would go on, and people would gather in the street and outside and stop it from happening. Um, it, it was a different world and a different life, and it should have provided me um, with everything that I needed. We, however, moved from there to a much harder and tougher working-class area where people were much more divided along class lines, along religious lines. We were the only two Catholic boys in a community of people, um, so we were constantly um, harassed all the way home every single night by a gang or two or three of boys from the local high school who um, would you know, come out with their taunts, Catholic dogs sitting on logs, eating maggots out of frogs. We would hear this night after night. Sometimes it would come to blows. They would, we'd have to fight our way home. And... Um, so, so we changed from an environment where working class people had a lot of sense of solidarity and helped each other to an environment where the doors were locked at night and there was violence on the street. And so, and the uh, early formation of what later would become hardcore gangs. Um, that area has changed a lot where I grew up in that second part and it's now um, actually full of expensive homes and very seemingly contented people. So it's a very different thing. Um, than what it was when I grew up. But that's sort of a part of that working class thing of growing up with um, having to be vigilant on the street and so on. The very severe school that I went to was an excellent preparation for prison when flaws in my character later in my life led me to um, steal money for heroin, to commit robberies, uh, for to get money for drugs mm-hmm. and put people in fear. That sent me to prison, Those, that weakness and flaw in my character sent me there and pursued me for a long time till I faced it. Uh, and when I got to prison, actually I realized a lot of the life that I led was a good preparation for that place, for incarceration. What was school like for you? The application there is in um, unjust and rigidly applied punishment and discipline and a deficit. So you have that on one hand, it's unjust, mm. and it's rigidly applied, and it's a punishment. And on the other hand, you have a deficit of positive reinforcement. You have a deficit of encouragement of, for people who are a little different, who are thinking a little differently, looking a little differently, and so on, who act a little differently, who are a bit, maybe they act a bit in class, maybe they are class pranksters to a certain extent, but they're also bright, and they have a huge potential. And that's crushed in the absence of positive reinforcement. And the application, you could get along without being praised or without being supported if you were not subjected to unjust and rigid discipline. Mm. Well, that prepares you for prison because that's what prison is, the constant application of unjust and rigid discipline. (laughs) And the total absence of vacuum of positive reinforcement, unless you get a really good rehabilitation program there. Mm. It's so strange how we 
how we socialize ourselves to 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 find that normal from such a young age right indeed <laughs> to it's so you know it's so patently obvious that this is counterproductive and is going to bring about counterproductive results and that when you get an unruly kid instead of saying look you're so unruly you have to go and get two hours of counseling go in and see the counselor no you need two hours or whatever of solitary confinement no, you need some help. It's somebody who listens to you and says, well, come on, man, you've got to get this right. You're, you're disrupting the whole class. You've got to work this out. You've got to figure out a way not to do that. How can you do this? You know, this successful in life, et cetera, et cetera. Counseling, help, advice, not censure, criticism, and punishment. But that's just the way that it is in many of those things. It's a- when you look back on that element of your life, that part of your life, um, and if you wanted to, you could kind of go into some... Um, you can go into some more detail around what that was for you. But when you go, when you look back on that life, what do you think about when you think about the GDR from that period of time um, and how he was going, what he was going through? Well, that's a very big question. Uh, It would probably take volumes to really go into for any person at my time in life to look back at that other person they used to be when they were in their twenties. Um, I think if I focus on the flaws, the f- one, and by no means the first or most important, but one critical flaw was my capacity or inclination, tendency to run away from a crisis. I didn't run away from danger. I didn't run away from conflict. Um, I stood up to bullies all my life and was brave in that sense. I, I was prepared to do it and sometimes got a beating, but I did it. And I, it's, so that wasn't the, as, the, the aspect of it, really. It was when there's a calamitous crisis, a heartbreaking crisis in my life, my tendency was to run. And that's emblematic in the fact that I did escape from prison after two and a half years of a 10-year sentence. Um, that, that was it. That, that's who I was. I ran away every single time from every relationship, from every confrontation that was deeply emotional. Uh, from every real test of my character, every real test, I ran away. And it wasn't until I realized that it was not me saving myself, so to speak, each time, as I kind of justified it in my life, throughout my life, it was me um, abandoning others, abandoning responsibility, um, abandoning consequences for the things that I did. And when I accepted that that was really what I was doing, I wasn't liberating myself, I was abandoning those very important parts of anyone's life, everything started to turn around. I was very, very fortunate that um, when I was recaptured in in Germany um, after 10 years on the run uh, and did 19 months there um, in the prison, that I was returned to two years of solitary Mm. and I was very fortunate. Um, It was a turning point in my life. The first year of solitary was, you know, as it would be for a lot of people, a bit of whinging and grumbling and why me? And then, um, you know, the second year as the calendar turned and, you know, I said this before, I think you, you look back at the year you've just done and you know now what a year in, in the box is. 
and you know you've got one more year in that sandbox. So you now know what's in front of you because you just did one. And it, things change within yourself. Instead of why me, it was always because of me. Mm. I look back and said, you know, this was because of me. And this was because of me. And over that, the course of that year, that second year in solitary, spend a lot of time, I was lucky enough to have that time, to come to grips with this and say, and, you know, you, you break down, you cry, you get angry at yourself, you get angry, you, you want to burst out and so on, but you keep your cool because the process is about, that you're entering is a process about changing yourself, accepting responsibility and promising yourself honestly and authentically that you'll never do those negative things again to anyone as long as you live. You escaped from a prison in Australia? Yes. And you and you were found ten years later in Germany. I was arrested at an airport ten years later. Arrested in Germany. In Germany. Yes. What happened in those ten years? <laughs> many, many, many things. Um, <laughs> many things. Some adventures in New Zealand, which is a beautiful country full of wonderful people. I can heartily recommend it as an Australian. Mm. I can heartily recommend to anyone out there. Um, this is a really lovely, lovely country. Beautiful people. Uh, of course, they, every country has its issues and its problems. I'm not saying it's paradise. Mm. But uh, the, the people are just tremendously nice people, New Zealanders, and they don't have a chip on their shoulder. They they know sort of at their point where they are out there in the, at that point in the ocean, they're, they're a kind of lighthouse. Um, and sometimes in Australia, it could be a bit of a madhouse. Uh, New Zealand is very different. It's a beautiful place. And I went there and I was fortunate enough to be there with some wonderful, wonderful people who looked after me and protected me and I had some adventures there and then was traveling through India to Germany and when I arrived in Bombay within a day I tore up the ongoing ticket because I knew I'd found the place I wanted to stay which was Mumbai. What was it about Mumbai? <laughs> well speaking as a newly liberated incarcerated man so to speak um, having just busted out of jail not long before yeah. I saw freedom everywhere. People had a lot of liberty that they didn't have in, in Australia. It's really sort of much more controlled society, which a lot of people have seen during COVID in Melbourne. Um, they, it's a different place. India, people were, everywhere I looked, people were free to do pretty much what they wanted. If you wanted to walk your car down the middle of the street, nobody stopped you. People just made an accommodation and went around you. If you wanted to go to sleep on the footpath, people walked around you. They didn't stomp on you or trample you or knock you out of the way or anything. They just literally, thousands of people would walk around you what, because you were lying there with a blanket over your head going to sleep. Mm -hmm. People let you do that. Um, dogs roamed freely. People, kids were everywhere, seemed to be roaming freely. And everywhere I looked, I saw joyful faces. I saw beautiful faces as well. It's such a beautiful country full of lovely, lovely people. And that, I think it's one of the reasons why Bollywood is exported all over the world. There's just such beauty that you see everywhere in India. But you also see joy, people laughing and joking, and whether it's in a slum or it's on a, on a sidewalk outside some stores, people laughing and joking and enjoying with one another. Um, this, this one, the massive crowds everywhere, or perhaps mm -hmm. because of it. But I fell in love with it, the freedom that I saw everywhere, the freedom, everyone was free to be who they wanted, it seemed. Everybody looked different. Everybody had a different way, a different style. And gradually you realize, ah, oh, yes, this is this and this is that. There was so much variety, so much diversity in how you can be who you want to be mm. and represent yourself in the world, which stunned me when I first got there. In the West, it's kind of 
there are these particular, you know, there are certain rigidities and certain um, strictures around how we move and the way that we kind of navigate. So I think that the liberation that you probably feel, I don't even know, just generally um, in a country like Australia or Melbourne, particularly, and then, you know, very similar to parts of the UK, I imagine, um, just those strictures and then that freedom of trying to just just be in the space is so hard because um, there's so much that you have to conform to as well. And also the fact that you, you, you had come from one of the highest stakes places with regards to breaking out of um, um, that prison. And when you went back there then and you were in, you know, and you said that, you know, you had your first year of solitary and then your second year, that the first year... Did that feel very long? And then the, the second then the second year, did it feel quicker? Um and or, or was there no difference? I think um, the second year did feel much um it went much faster. In fact, the entirety of the rest of my sentence went much faster. I still had another four years to serve when I got out of solitary uh in, in the maximum. The thing is, um, and it all passed much more quickly. The turning point was, um, of course, in my own life to accept responsibility and say, uh, I have the capacity in my hands to shape my own destiny. There's no reason why I have to continue on the path that I'm on forever. Um, I, I can change my life, change my destiny. And I started to do that. And one of the first things I did was by greeting the guard on the uh, first of um, the year when he opened the door and saying, Happy New Year. Um, how are you today? And he was shocked because for a year it had always been really perfunctory and respectful but perfunctory between us. And suddenly it was this. And that was the new me, so to speak. I didn't see them as the person turning the key or in a blue uniform. I just saw it as another person, mm. another human being whom he was as much locked in there in a sense as I was with his job and his duties and his obligations and so on. And um, I, it was a change. Um, my attitude became much more positive. My interactions with the officers became more positive with any other men who were shouting out and so on that I was shouting out to in the night because we'd be there from time to time. That was also much more positive and the time passed more quickly. As a coder on that, when I got out of the um, solitary unit and was back in Max, I spent, I decided down there to work on a program for a life sentence prisoners who can't live in life. For me, to be sentenced to a life in prison when and to know there's a library there full of it's a cave full of jewels and treasures to help you escape from that place for a while and know that not one of them is available to you because you can't read and write is shocking and the illiteracy rate in prison is you know very high and this is a correlation this is not you know and this is not just an associated fact this is a correlation um so i decided to work on that aspect of it because um when i um, I knew that when I got out of the solitary unit, I would have some support. I had a lot of men calling out to me, um, saying, you know, six months to go, 11 months to go, calling, hey, doc, can you hear me? And so on. Mm -hmm. So when I got out, I started a literacy program. Um, it was accepted by the um, authorities, and it became a successful program for life sentence prisoners uh, who couldn't read and write. It incorporated more than just learning to read and write. It incorporated um, elements of self to build self-esteem by giving them elements of a broad understanding of how the universe began, how our planet began, how life on our planet began, the rough ideas and so on, and the best knowledge we have to the day today. And then a quick skip forward into 
uh, various civilizations, so to speak, since we domesticated ourselves and so on, um, and then through to the philosophy and a bit of um, modern science, interspersed with the lessons in reading and writing. And it was a year-long program. It took me a year and a half to develop it. By the time I was into my second year of doing it, I was becoming eligible for parole fairly soon. And I remember writing to my mother at the time and saying, Mum, if they deny my parole at my parole hearing, I won't mind because my work here is so important and the time is passing way too quickly to finish what I really want to do. So it went from marking off each day when you first start a sentence and it's a, a terrible, terrible grudge the, the clock is in slow motion all the time to, oh my God, there's not enough time to finish what I have to do. My sentence is finishing too quickly, if you know what I mean. I'm not going to say that's for everybody, but that yeah. was for me, the, the difference in that and the speed at which the sentence passed, uh, the, the interactions once I had changed myself. jacket and i i'm intrigued to hear what, sure. what, what happened here tell me about that well the first time that i was put into a straight jacket um was uh, after a fight with prison officers and they subdue you they strip you naked and then they put you in a straight jacket and leave you in an observation cell which has a massive perspex window that you can't break with your head or anything else and there's a horsehair blanket on the floor. And if you're lucky, there's a toilet in there. Um, if not, there's a bucket. Um, and you've just got to figure out how to do that in a straitjacket if you really need to go. And so you're in there, and they can see through this massive plexi thing. And when they're doing it, when they put the straitjacket on and they're getting you in, even if you're struggling or whatever, by the time you, they're twisting your arms and stuff to get you into it, there's a moment when you're standing there and you're in a straitjacket and everyone else is in their uniform. And that there's a moment when you start to think that you're the crazy person in the room rather than they are. Mm -hmm. Because the whole thing that started it was a violent incident by an officer that wasn't required. It was against the rules. It was an infraction and it sparked off violence with some of the men. And to then take us... And instead of him, and, you know, we got the worst of it because they got batons and stuff. But then take us and put us in straitjackets um, and so on was really a, a twisted way of looking at it. The, the officer should have been disciplined. We should have been disciplined in whatever way, but we were not the crazy people. This particular demented officer was in this particular day. Um, it, there's a moment when you start to think you're the crazy person and everyone else is sane, even though you know you're not. Mm. And that really is what, it is to be in this world and to know you're right within yourself, but to not be accepted by the world or to not be able to mesh with the world in the way that other people seem to be able to do. And, and that's a, a heart of a lot of anxiety that's out there and so on. And it's to do with when you're in that situation of the straitjacket, you're powerless. It's designed to make you not just harmless, but powerless, of course. And um, if you try to kick out with your legs or something, you're thrown into the observation room and that's the end of it. And if you do it again, they'll chain your legs and re you know, remove the power of 
that power that you might have had. If you keep screaming and shouting, they might gag you. So it's a question of re removing each power that you have, the power to move, the power to freely do things and move around. And that same ex experience, I go back to it many times, to the first time when I just was really sent into a, a kind of quick depression of thinking, well, um, I, I must be, something's wrong. To the second time, it happened in a similar circumstance, and once again, I wasn't the only one, there were three or four of us, where that time I, I focused on what would Houdini have done in this circumstance? Oh, yes, to get out of this thing. He would have dislocated his shoulder. Do I have the courage to dislocate my own shoulder to get out of this thing? And I focused on that kind of thing, if you know what I mean. Um, but each time, those two times that I was put into a straitjacket, uh, it, it gave me a really deep understanding of the, what anxiety is like, of what things that stop you from reaching fulfillment are like. They're like that. They're a straitjacket. Anything that stops you from seeking your fulfillment and becoming fulfilled in life and so on is a straitjacket and so on. And, and it needs to be taken off. Sometimes, if it's a straitjacket, how do you get out of it? You're either Houdini or you get a friend to help you undo that thing. Another person, somebody else to help you. Doing it by yourself is very, very helpful. Never thought of it like that. Just because whenever I think of straitjackets, I always think of somebody putting you in it. And then they are responsible for taking you out of it. Yeah, but then they leave you in it for quite a long time. And they leave you in it. Yes. So the way you've described it actually is just blows my mind because I'm just thinking, actually, that is a very good metaphor for anxiety because we try to wrangle out of these things by ourselves. And it's so hard because we put ourselves in more and more of a bind the more we try to get out of it. And then it's literally the power of other people or the connection with somebody. But if we if we shape that person that is wanting to look after us and care for us and connect with us, if we shape that person as somebody who wants to help us undo that, that is empowering, you know? Indeed. Connection is the key. The word you just used, connection is the key. And disconnection is usually, if we look at people who are unhappy and distressed and so on, very often they're disconnected from something, somewhere, some, someone. And reconnection is usually the way to get that person back into their, their own personal uh, mainstream of life. Um, these are the things. It's sort of when we talk about well-being um, and, you know, th there's always been a thing in my mind about when it comes to well-being yeah. that it's not really kind of sufficient. It's, it's, I, I get it, and I'm really glad that there are a lot of people focused on it because I don't have to, which is great. <laughs> um, it, it's, and well-being, if you switch it around, it's being well. Okay, and being well is kind of good, but it's, the fact is, you, you know, there are most of us, um, most of the people in the world are well. There are more well people than unwell people, um, in, except in certain places and certain conditions, but generally speaking, and being well is not really sort of, if you say to someone, how are you? And they say, I'm well. You might go, oh, oh my goodness, have you been unwell? Mm. If, they, if they just say, I'm well. If, if you ask, you know, if, if you, or you might say, how are you? And someone says, I'm well, thank you. You might go, oh, I'm sorry for asking. 
But if you say, how are you? And someone says, great, um, I'm good. And so if you ask someone here, you say, hey, Wagwan. They say, I'm good, man. Everything I read. Straight away, good, man. And straight, you'll hear that, not I'm well. And it's good and great and the best you can be that I'm focused on, that I'm really interested in. And I, I think just focusing on being well is kind of not enough in a way. It, it's it maybe it, for a lot of people it is. Some people, what we need, I, I think, and I was one of them myself, we need inspiration, we need positivity, we need um, a, an environment that helps us to create, grow, and to give, to be a giver rather than a taker in life. We need an environment for that. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And I've always had that thing because, you know, I do, I speak quite a bit around masculinity and kind of the way that men kind of navigate this space of um, of emotional well-being. And, um, and, and I have spoken quite a bit around when people ask you, how are you? And you say, I'm good. And that's not necessarily a, an answer. For me, it's not an answer I accept. I have to, I, I go further because <laughs> I'm just like, well, I'm good. Does it, If I'm asking you how you are and you say I'm good, that's not anything. That's not even, a, that's barely a state. Like, how are you? What is happening? So it's very interesting um, how, how language kind of helps us sh- shape the way that we then, how far we want to go. In that's in that space and and i and i do think that like we are still really learning how to communicate well um as humans and it's just so yes. tricky because we've got so many words yes. um in the english language in particular we've got so many words um but yet we can't articulate or pinpoint anything at the moment it's tricky yes indeed uh, if i um look back on you know the life that i've led and could provide any kind of advice for people who are thinking about their own well-being and so on. Someone who's, I'm someone who's experienced a lot of anxiety in life and a lot of dread and tension and fear and, and you know, heart-stopping fear for years at a time and calamities and crises, mostly of my own making. And if I look back, I, I would, the advice I would give is um, surround yourself to the best you can beyond your, your immediate loved ones, surround yourself with people who are positive. Mm. Positivity is the wellspring of optimism and optimism builds resilience and perseverance. When people feel pessimistic, they lose their perseverance, they lose their will to continue to go on. When people are optimistic, they'll keep going. And the wellspring of optimism is positivity. People who are positive, encourage them to look for that, for such people, engage with them, share your precious kindness and energy and generosity with people who are like-minded and who are prepared to share theirs with you. Mix with people who are also fair, because that fairness is what brings you diversity of views, diversity of understanding. It's fair because it's, it's fairness means being open to everything, to not just close something down because you don't agree with it. To listen, to to be fair, and to try strive to be fair in what you do. People like that. If you're fair in what you do in business, in your company, in your private life, in your social media, mix it with other people who are like-minded in that way. If you build that and be honest, honesty is the crucible of integrity. Mm. 
and integrity is the crucible of trust. We can't build trust among people who have no integrity, and you can't have integrity if you're not honest. So be honest with yourself first, get that straight in whatever you do, and be honest in what you do. Now, if you surround yourself with like-minded people in whatever your walk of life, if the people you seek out and, and connect with deeply and open yourself to are people who are fair and honest as you are try to be and strive to be, people who are positive in their outlook, the change in your life, it mm. gives you a freedom to shape your destiny in a way I know mixing with people who are routinely unfair with each other, routinely dishonest with each other. I've been in circles like this, you know, and people who are routinely negative about everything. That shapes so much of what you do. The old expression, you can judge a man by his, uh, the company he keeps. I don't think you can judge any man. Judging should be left to those among ourselves who are appointed to that mm. task, and the rest of us should leave it to them. Don't judge each other. Let those professionals do that job and the rest of us stop judging each other. But the company you keep can shape the path that you walk in life. And surrounding yourself as, a, as, a, as an empathetic person with people, like-minded people, will help you to seek your, your fulfillment in life, help you to deal with those anxieties because you'll share them. Whatever anxieties you feel, whatever stresses you feel, whatever crises you feel, you'll share them. And why will you share them? Because you trust those other people. Why do you trust them? Because they have integrity. They're committed to fairness and decency and giving and being positive. I, if I could relive my life, would only seek out, I'm surrounded by people like this now. Everyone in my team is like this. I'm surrounded by people like this. And my life is full of creativity, of positivity, of love, affection, of constant um, affirmation and reinforcement of each other. You can, we're helping each other to be better and better at what we do. That should have been the whole of my life and it wasn't. So that's what I would pass on. This is critically important. You be that person who's worthy of such company. You be that person worthy of that and then open your heart to such people and build a community of like souls around you. Thank you so much for that, for that wisdom. Um, I definitely agree. And I, I, I think sometimes... I have thought in those in those levels like you know I, you know if I could do something again or if I was to be able if I was to do this then, but then I sometimes look at it and I think if I give myself a bit of compassion, you know I wouldn't be the person I am today. If I was to do half if I if half the lessons I had to go through and learn that I just did um, that I just didn't have to go through and I did them, I definitely I don't even know whether this show would even exist or whatever. And I'm just sometimes think about it. And I think I do remember um, being younger and I used to remember kind of wishing for friendship, praying for friendship. That used to be my thing. Like I remember sitting down on my bed when I was like 14 and 15 and being like, I really wish I had friends. Like, and I did have friends, but I knew on some level they weren't the friends that I wanted or needed and I think that's just been a that's just been a that was just a persistent journey for me up until my late my mid to late 20s just to really figure out who they who that is and what that journey is and the people that you want around you and I think that comes to people in many different ways and times as well but it's very important what you've said so I want to thank you for that that was an amazing piece of wisdom um the next bit kind of 
leads me to your new book, The Spiritual Path. And it's your first non-fiction book. And it... Do you want to just explain what the book is and why you put pen to paper for this? And why non-fiction? Sure. Um, non-fiction first because it was deeply personal. And fiction, you can abstract yourself. You, you, you can make aspects of your life features in a character, in, in a novel, but like Shantaram, but it's not you. And um, fortunately, you don't confuse yourself with the character. In this, it was deeply personal, the journey. Uh, some years ago, I think now it must be about eight years ago, I met my spiritual teacher, coming to nine years ago. And after many years of meeting many different teachers, I finally met the teacher who, who I uh, loved very quickly for the sincerity, authenticity, and amazing charisma of his ritualistic performance. Um, I've never seen anything like it in my life, and to this day, and I've seen the same ceremonies performed hundreds and hundreds of times, mm. and they're just as fascinating and thrilling as the first time. And his wisdom on top of this, the authenticity of this ritualistic experience of what he was doing when he was blowing a shell in front of the fire during the ceremonies, it was so authentic and so beautiful. But on top of that, he was very wise, mm. and he could cut to the chase. And I like him, I love him tremendously. And it, uh, when I met him, it was a turning point for me because I finally saw someone I, I felt willing to put my head at his feet. And I think as we were talking about masculinity before, I think it's very important for men to find someone in their lives that they think um, they can honorably uh, kneel down and put their head at their feet and say, your achievement in this life is unmatchable. What you have done, what you are, and what you do is unmatchable. And I'm proud to put my head at your feet and say, next to you, I have a kid. This, what you've done in your life, in your 40 years of penance. Um, so meeting him was a big turning point, watching his rituals, seeing this and listening to the wisdom over the years. And when I went to us, back to Australia to look after my parents, who were both dying, he, we, when we discovered they were both dying, we went back to Australia. He gave me a conch shell, and I'd watched him blow it thousands of times, but I perhaps... Uh, I'd never thought of blowing it myself, and I blew the conch. It belonged to his mother, and he gave it, and she'd blown it all of her life. And I started blowing the conch, but to do that, I knew I had to spend quite a long time, a bit like that second year in solitary, tidying myself up, getting myself worthy of doing this, which was taking a leap of faith, of saying, I acknowledge you, which sounds arrogant for a human being to say we acknowledge God, but if we have free will, it's required for us to do it, otherwise we're robots. So I acknowledge you. I surrender the negative within myself uh, that is not required, the things within myself that are not required to connect with you, and I am devoted to you. Surrender doesn't mean lying on the ground and being kicked by God, I think. Surrender means giving up the things in yourself that like ego, pride, vanity, that are not required when you go into a devotional space. You can leave them at the door, put them back on when you, when you come back out again. But when you go into a space where you're trying to offer something to the divine, um, then uh, you don't need those things. And so that's surrender, surrendering those unrequired elements within yourself that are not necessary for, to go into a spiritual en engagement or connection. Mm. So to do that and take those three steps, I acknowledge you, I surrender, and I I'm devoted to you, 
these this required for me um, some tidying up because I've led a very untidy life. And once I felt that I was ready, I started blowing the conch and being the person I am, I kept notes. So after the very first time and every time afterwards, I kept notes in my journal. And after the third year, I, or in the third year, I said to my soulmate, um, A, you know what, I think I should start writing about this because this is a transformational experience. Everything around us has changed, everything around me without us even knowing it. And it's my whole life has changed and I should really start writing. And she said, good. I said, when I finished three years, at the end of three years, I said to her, mm, I need another year of this. It's not enough. At the end of five years, I felt ready. And then to that six-year devotion, I wrote The Spiritual Path, a little book about my decision to take the leap of faith and what happened when I did take the leap of faith and try to connect through sincere, authentic devotion. There are so many things I want to pull out of that and extrapolate and ask. Um, but the two things that I wanted to talk about, so the first thing I wanted to speak to you about was the spiritual teacher and the spiritual mm. path you took. Um, what kind of spiritual um, practice was that what kind of um yeah what kind of background what kind of element was that what was the what was the practice that you settled on he is a tantric brahmin of the hindu faith and so he performs he's authorized he has okat authorization to perform rituals at the highest and um, most arcane levels um and in any temple anywhere he's not forbidden from any temple that he's been to his personal devotion is to Kali, the mother of all things, the great mother. He is devoted to the feminine divine. And most in India are devoted in one way or another to the masculine divine, as in many Western countries. But um, he is devoted to the feminine divine principle, Kali. And what I like about uh, what, what attracted me to the devotion to Kali, listening to his discourses, is that she is very unforgiving. Um, the, many of the household gods will forgive you if you light incense and show devotion and say your prayers and then go outside and cheat someone and come back and show devotion and light incense and so on. They'll forgive you. They're household gods. But you can't do that with Kali. It's extremely uncompromising and very, very dangerous. So there are extremely few devotees um, of Ma Kali in her form. There are devotees of other forms of Ma, but not Ma Kali. And so this attracted me as well. It, it's an all or nothing kind of thing, which the life I'd led, much of it really prepared me for, a kind of all or nothing commitment. And so I watched and observed him in uh, his observations of the Hindu faith. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. Just because I was thinking about, it's interesting to get the specificity on it. Um, so how do you practice now? I blow the conch. Um, I have a small uh, devotional space, which is behind me, that you can see here, yeah. um, that has pictures of my ancestors, my mother and my father. Um, it has pictures of um, my partner's mother and an image of feathers for her father, who kept birds his whole life mm. and loved them. Um, so I blow the conch here in this devotional space, which is also my recording studio. So I have my sacred space and my creative space in the same in area. The same room, yeah. 
Um, I'll then go oh, quite often. There's a beach not far away, as is often the case in Jamaica. There's a beach not far away. There's a river not far away. So I'll go to some natural place like the ocean here where there are no people around and just blow the conch, stand in the ocean and blow conch. Um, I'll blow the conch in the forest and rivers um, in, in any place where I'm not disturbing anyone and so on. It's, um, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, in a temple. I'm not a Hindu. Um, I'm not a practitioner of any faith. I don't belong to any religion. Um, I'm <clears throat> appreciative of all of them and have learned to pray in many different faiths in my travels around the world and have many friends in different faiths. I never found a religion that I felt compelled to join within myself. Um, I feel that what I'm doing in my own way <clears throat> of blowing the shell and, and in a natural setting and here with the utmost sincerity that I have, that I can master, is connecting me. And I'm not saying it's connecting me to the divine. I think it's connecting, opening up my spiritual understanding of this world, connecting me much more to nature, connecting me much more to others around me um, in a much more spiritual way. Amazing. Um, I think that what you said was really important about um, there's people that you should be able to lay at the, at their feet and say, this is, I am surrendering, but willing to learn from you and be that. And I have had that conversation with myself, but also with a few other men as well and, and women um, about elders and the importance of elders and how we signify that that process because you know as as today has been long you know we as a as communities we've always had elders um wise people who are able to kind of work as both parent and teacher mm -hmm. and guide for the ethics and the morals of the community and the people there and their spirit and really responsible for their spiritual development and stuff. And I think that that's super important because I don't think we see that very much, especially in the way that we've become so individualized. We look at, we look to elders a lot of the time for the, for what we can gain from them. You know, people have mentors and they have these people, they have business mentors, they have, um, all of those kinds of things there but and it's what you can kind of gain and how they can kind of help you get more um, materially and I think that there's something in that about actually having conversations around creating and inducting and being with elders people who can impart some le a level of wisdom for your spiritual emotional and mental well-being i agree completely yeah absolutely and before making a general comment about elders and the community there i uh, just point out that there is a wonderful organization called the elders um which started with foundational members nelson mandela um jimmy carter um you know mary robinson former president of ireland uh, Desmond Tutu um, mm -hmm. and uh, Kofi Annan, 
and a number of leading figures who had retired from public life but still had the moral authority to jump into different situations and sit down with people and uh, prefer the advice that they had as elders. Um, the elders is well worth looking at and they've achieved some wonderful things. And it shows the value of having um, in the global village, global elders, so to speak, shows the value of it in their achievements. The other thing is in a gen more general sense, the cult of youth started in the late 50s and into the 1960s. By the end of the 1960s, it had been well established. By the 1970s, films were, uh, instead of being pitched at 30 to 50-year-olds, films were pitched at, you know, 15 to 25-year-olds. Mm. By the 90s, we, films were pitched at 14-year-olds and so on. And we end up with the cult of youth because that's where the money was. They didn't have it themselves, but they could nag the people around them to get it, um, to get what they wanted. And yeah. so the marketers thought, why bother at, you know, trying to sell to people who are discerning and will think twice before buying it? Why don't we sell to them and get them to nag their parents into buying it for them? Mm -hmm. So we ended up with a youth market and a fixation on youth um, that still persists to this day. Parallel to that has been a, a declining respect for the elderly, where it's in routine now in advertising or in comedy programs to ridicule the elderly as being incapable, incompetent, useless and so on, basically just occupying space until they're not, um, and so on, a lot of that. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's doing that, and there's still huge parts of the world where people respect them. But one of the things that went missing and, and that would have compensated for this was as we get a rise in a kind of youth-oriented culture and a decline in general respect for the elderly, it's like, come on, man, you've got to get with it. You're not cool, man, and so on. A, a general thing that started happening in the 50s, 60s, and up. At the same time, what we end up uh, uh, had was a decline in the places where the elderly used to gather freely and safely. Cafes and bars. Most of those cafes, the corner cafes, and many of them were sort of occupied in the day by elders who, elderly people who sat around and younger people could come and join them, listening to the wisdom, the gags, the jokes that were being tossed around by the older people. And so what we tended to do was shove the older people into retirement homes or out-of-sight out of homes, close down those areas and switch them over into barista cafes for a younger generation. Mm. And a lot of the places where the older people used to hang out that was where kids could any age could go up and hang out with them and be treated well with some respect and maybe get a clip on the ear if they were cheeky. But that where they could go and interact, those places closed down as well. And reopening them, which is happening now, we're realizing the value of having a community center where elderly people can just talk and mm. ex exchange their understandings and so on. This interaction is vital. The, the breakup of the nuclear family uh, in, you know, from a wider family of grandparents, parents, children, and others who, who would come and stay, that large unit worked very well to reduce heart attack rates and so forth because it took enormous stress off the individual parent. When the parents moved to a place by themselves and mum and dad are in this place and the parents are over here, there was no one else to pass the baby to. So just be, you know, if you know what I mean, no one, no one else to help you with those day-to-day -day things that aggravate you. Right so a, a return to this will happen. The, the, the thing that's maybe shaken up a lot of people is the colossal and horrific toll taken on the very elderly by COVID. Mm. So we now know what it's like to suddenly not have them, mm. if you know what I mean. We now know it happens like that. And I think now it's going to make a new generation of kids and others be a bit more loving towards and understanding and cherishing towards that generation that they've lost in a blink. Yeah. So it's now going to take their place. Yeah. 
and just as a final note on that, I I I grew up um, very much in the British Caribbean community um, here uh, with my grandmother, who was a pretty much a figurehead in her community, um, and I think that whole generation of people who came over from Jamaica. Um, and the West Indies, the rest of the West Indies, Trinidad, Barbados, all of those places, they really came and had a level of uh, community that they held and that they created um, and that they really, you know, they, they sat, I remember being um, a boy, like around nine, 10 with my other cousins. When we were young, we would go up and stay with her over the summer. And in staying with her, we would, then have to be with her doing all the things that she does and she um obviously a christian woman so she would go and she would she had her weekly club and that was where you know the 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 church elders would would be the men and the women and the women would be you know either knitting or saying or playing whatever cards they're playing and chatting and just connecting play my number do crosswords so, uh, but um i i found them i found the older men and we would they watched and i and they I remember they pulled me in they're like ah oh, come in here young man and they're there so they were in their 70s um and they were, they were playing dominoes and yes and and ludi and ludi and we were just watching them play. i was just watching them play like you know it was just and i was just to sit there and they taught me how to play dominoes Fantastic. they taught me how to read the cards how to read the the domino pieces they taught me how to watch when other other people are playing and what to look for and how to communicate among other men just like as older men and i say all that to say that in the uk we've had this issue with the windrush scandal with papers that weren't kind of that you know questionable citizenship for people that the children of my grandma's generation um, and them coming over and, you know, things dot, and I's not being dotted and T's not being crossed and them being so, you know, flagrantly just sent back to Jamaica or sent back to Barbados and all these places. But also, as I'm growing older, I'm losing my grandparents. You know, I have one grandparent left. So that, and but that's very, that's very similar for a lot of people my age and going into their 30s now. We've, we're, all of our grandparents are going. That's a generation that is going. And what I'm finding is that now that our parents are, they are stepping into roles of elders, but it's hard because there was there's such there's such a huge gap to fill. There's such a huge there's such huge shoes to to step into because these guys came over, faced such hostility had huge families built communities really had that up there and they were and they held the position of mom dad grandparent for at least 90 years and they and they really sat there and they held those spaces and they're going so we're in this really weird transition as you said with covid coming now and we've i've seen a lot of grandparents are dying um a lot of elders are going a lot of community matriarchs and patriarchs are like like dying and like um and it's just really interesting to see what that looks like because even us as millennials 
are moving into positions of we are either parents or aunties and uncles now and there's children coming up underneath us and I've been thinking a lot about that eldership so when you brought that up it kind of really um just switched something on for me because I was thinking I've looked at it and I've had conversations with um on this podcast with some with Roman Krisnarik he's a public philosopher and he spoke and he wrote a book called The Good Ancestor what it means to be a good ancestor and those kind of conversations and this conversations like this one really kept me in a position of thinking how am I how am I training to be the best possible elder mm -hmm. for these younger people coming up what is it that I'm doing that that I should be doing but then the older generation to me they are learning how to do all of that themselves as well so it's a very interesting place to be it's a very interesting space to occupy it is and the worthy ancestor is um the mirror of that of course is the worthy descendant to be worthy of your ancestors many of the things I did in my life were unworthy of my ancestors mm. and every one of us who's alive today has a continuous line back to our mother, mitochondrial Eve, everyone. If your line died out, you're not here. If you're still here, it's because your line didn't die out. That's why you're still here. And there have been many, many places and catastrophes in the world where entire lines were wiped out, every generation and every potential generation in that area for quite a while, just wiped out. This has happened. But if we're alive, it's because we have a, that's why we can do a mitochondrial DNA analysis on ourselves, because we have an unbroken line. It branches out all over the place, but it's not broken. We're still here. So to be worthy of that line that extended into this day when many passed away and did not persist into the age in which we are fortunate mm -hmm. to live and the chance that we have, we have to be worthy of that as well, to be worthy of our ancestors. And in a way, that's a, the same kind of thing, being be worthy of your parents in the, in, if they're alive in this life. Um, one of the great teachings of a, a teacher, I'm, I climbed a mountain to meet him, and I said, please, you know, finally, I'd spent two days there. He said, ask your question. I said, what is your great teaching? He said, never do anything to shame your parents. I said, that's it? And he said, that's it. I went, wow, okay. But over the years, I realized this is a pretty damn good rule to live by. But what does that, but what does shaming your parents mean? If you know what I mean, don't do anything that would bring dishonor or, dis or shame toward your parents, like I did, by becoming a thief. I was the first person in at the history of my family ever convicted, ever brought before a court. We even had judges in our family. I oh, wow. okay. never, no one, all the way back, yes, going back four generations, there was a judge in our family. I said, judge is one. One judge. The thing is, um, no one in my family had ever done this. I did. And I brought disgrace on my living family. I brought disgrace on my ancestors and who had sort of struggled to pass on their progeny and say, let's hope for the best that future generations do well and so on. And they did provide for us well in this, as my parents did, and mm -hmm. provided well. It was me who threw that, all of that in the gutter, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Um I'm going to leave that there, but with regards to the book then, um, I'm looking forward to getting listeners into into that. Um, you can find it in most places where you can find books. Um, 
I have three questions I, I need to ask by the for the ending of this show. And um, the first question is, what do you have to say about living authentically? Just in a sentence. The authentic self is the devoted self. The authentic exactly. self is the devoted self. Yes. If you're devoted to your mother, your kids, your career, your colleagues, your research to find a cure, you're, um, as a driver, you're devoted to getting people to, to their destination safely. It's for you a kind of sacred duty. They're putting their lives in your hand and you see this, you're devoted to it. You don't just do it, you're devoted to it. You make sure in every way that their experience is comfortable, safe, clean, and so on, and you're, you, you are devoted to... I discovered that what I was searching for my entire life was my devoted self. The version of myself that became devoted was what I'd been searching for everywhere, looking for answers, and there it was. As soon as I became devoted, truly devoted to my parents, truly devoted to my family, truly devoted to my loved one, truly devoted to my friends, truly devoted to my art and my work, to be truly devoted to it and give everything I had to it, and then to be truly devoted to something beyond this, which for me is my conception of the divine, something beyond everything and beyond conception. I, it's too big. It's just there. And I love you. And if what I do pleases you, great. You're beyond wanting things and needing things. Sorry, you don't want it and need it, but you made a universe in which I'm free. I'm free to give this to you. So I freely do. And if it pleases you, great. If it doesn't, I'll do better tomorrow. But I'll never stop because that's what devotion is. I will never stop. And I think that search for that, that's what that is for me. That's why I say that in, to encapsulate it in that one. Authenticity is the devoted self. Okay. What do people underestimate in life? I'm tempted to say everything. Of course, it's the first word that jumped into my mind. But uh, you could narrow it down to uh, every power within themselves. I've seen people overcome the most horrific, terrible things and get through it. And I've seen people not only do that and triumph over that, but become better. Somehow they've got a shine that they didn't have before. They have a, they have a, it's like they're blessed. They've been through a catastrophe. I, there was a book launched last night uh, by someone who's been through horrendous physical injuries and who had to type the entire book out with one finger. That one letter at a time, oh, and, and he did, and completed it. But he is, you talk to him for an hour and you feel fantastic. It's so inspirational, so up. They think this is great. It's just so terrific, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and finally, what does it mean to be human? Human beings, if I had to describe us to an alien popped in front of me and said, what manner of creature are you? I would say that we are carbon-based. <laughs> we are carbon-based, high-functioning, empathic adapters. We're carbon-based creatures. We're high-functioning. We're smart. And we may not be as smart as you are because you got here from outer space, but we're pretty smart. And we'll learn that. If you show us what you're doing, we'll pick it up pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So we're high-functioning. <laughs> We're empath empathetic. We're empaths. We 
um, connect with each other, with one another emotionally. And when we're deeply connected, we can even read each other's thoughts. People who love each other desperately and who are deeply connected, one will say something and the other will say, that is exactly what I was thinking. And this happens all the time with people who are deeply connected. We're highly empathetic creatures. You can feel and think with one another. And we're adaptive. Give us a problem, we'll adapt. Give us a hassle, we'll adapt. Give us a frozen tundra, we'll adapt. Give us a desert, we'll adapt. If you know what I mean, we're highly adaptive creatures. Um, it's, in many ways, it's been our downfall to a certain extent mm. with regard to our planet today. But that's what we are. Now, that's, there's another thing beyond being human, being a you know, carbon-based, high-functioning, empathetic adapter. There's this sort of nutshell analysis of what a human is. But beyond that, there's humane. We put one more letter on the end of human, and there's humane. And there, that's us. And there is a capacity within us that is the contrary of our capacity for anger, aggression, and violence. And that capacity is a capacity for love, compassion, creativity, sharing, giving, that is not known in any other creature. It's not paralleled anywhere. What our capacity to our, our bravery in what we will sacrifice for one another in the face of some threat and so on is unparalleled, unmatched. There's a lot in the natural world, but nothing like us. Mm. And so on, our capacity for sacrifice, our capacity to care and so on and share, born in our fragile way that we come into the world. We're born relatively helpless. We have to depend on one another. We have to love and nurture one another. And otherwise, we can't survive. I, I, I think humane is unique to us. Our, when we are at our best, and I believe that the best in us is the truth of us. I think that the worst of us is an aberration. I've, been, I've done the worst in my life. I've been the worst. And I know that's not me. It was a short time in my life when I did the, these things and all the rest of my life. It was, it was not like that. It is not me as a person. What am I truly as a person? It, the best of me is the truth of me, not the worst of me. And the worst is, does not define all of my life. Only a small part of it, so to speak. So uh, if we look at this and say this is what we are as human beings, and so on, we take, a, I think, a different type and a different approach. That's humane added on to human. Human. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure having this conversation. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this, honestly. Um, two books that you want to suggest to the audience. Two only. Yes. Um, I think... <laughs> Firstly, Tony Morrison, beloved, because I think any Shantaram readers, and God bless you guys out there, I get so many messages from people who have read Shantaram, sometimes more than once, and people who just discovered it, and they might be 16 years old in, in some, a town that I've never even heard of in this world, and they're reaching out um, with always the most positive and inspiring messages. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And for Shantaram readers out there, I'd like to recommend two books that they can really get into. The first one, I think, Beloved, is just an astonishing book. And I won't even say anything because the first paragraph, the first page is going to hook you in and you'll keep going. It's just astounding. It Hair Standing Up on the Arms, beautiful book. Then to go into another book that is a big journey across, if you want to get something a bit like Shantaram, um, from way back in the 1960s by an unreconstructed white man who was quietly drinking himself to death in the Greek islands, Lawrence Durrell, um, one of my favorite writers. Uh, it, that book is the Alexandria Quartet, and it's four not little four novels that are combined into one. And if you read them in the right order, each one takes you to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. 
that, that's a big journey that can take you on a, on a, a massive tour by someone who, all right, he didn't get everything right, he was a preacher of his time, but he was profoundly moved by a deep understanding of our, of our common humanity, that underneath everything else, we're, we're people. And the fact is, when we really need it, we pitch it, and we help each other. We don't look and, and say, that one's this and that one's that. We, we do, because deep within, we know it. We're all one people deep within ourselves. We're all one family. And so on, and that comes across in his work, um, not always, but and as well as that, he was a very lyrical writer. So I'd, I'd say those two for um, of oh my gosh, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of books that you can recommend, mm. and so on. I'd say those are two big reads that will take you on a nice journey. GDR, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so. Thank much. you so much for having me. God bless you and keep you safe. Thank you. One love from Jamaica.